0: I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. And today, we have a delightful Christmas treat for all of you. This is an episode I think you'll love listening to with everyone in your family. Over the last six months, we've run two essay contests in the free press. The first was for high schoolers. We asked young people to write about a problem facing American society and how they would fix it. The second contest, which we're publishing this week, was for an older generation, 70 years and up. We asked those people to tell us a story about an event that shaped their life, help give them wisdom, or a fresh perspective. Today, we're thrilled to bring you the winners of both of those contests. First, you'll hear 17-year-old Ruby Laraca read her winning essay, A Constitution for Teenage Happiness. As you'll hear, her happiness guide isn't what you expect from a 17-year-old. It involves Less phones, less technology—she doesn't own a phone at all—and more old books and memorizing poetry. Ruby is a homeschooled rising senior, and she told us she entered the contest because she believes in the free press's mission of finding, quote, the people under the radar or in the public eye who are telling the truth. Then you'll hear from Michael Tobin. Tobin is a 77-year-old psychologist, and his winning essay is called A Love Song for Deborah. It's about grappling with his wife's Alzheimer's diagnosis and nearly giving in to despair until he found the one thing that awakened her and him. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and that it moves, uplifts, inspires, and all of those other holiday spirit verbs. It definitely did for me. We'll be right back. Listeners have Honestly have probably heard me talk about Sapir, a quarterly journal edited by my friend and former colleague, Brett Stevens, and for good reason. Sapir is home to thoughtful, heterodox analysis on topics we care a lot about on this show—foreign policy, domestic policy, education, the Middle East, and much more. With Israel at war and rising anti-Semitism in the West, including at our most elite universities, Sapir is more important than ever— its current issue, called Friends and Foes, takes a deep, hard look at the people and principles that we can count on to counteract dangerous cultural and political trends near and far, and those that we can't. I recommend Danielle Haas's article on the human rights establishment. Haas was a senior editor at Human Rights Watch for over a decade, and she offers an intimate inside view of how human rights NGOs have lost their way and how far they have strayed from their founding missions. Check that essay out, along with the rest of Sapir's current Friends and Foes issue, at sapirjournal.org slash honestly. That's S-A-P-I-R journal dot org forward slash honestly.
1: A Constitution for Teenage Happiness. Written by me, Ruby LaRocca. When people ask me why I sacrificed the sociable, slightly surreal daily life at my local school for the solitary life of a homeschooled student in 2021, I almost never reveal the reason. An absence of books. For many students, books are irrelevant. They take too long to read. Even teachers have argued for the benefits of shorter digital resources. Last April, the National Council of Teachers of English declared it was time to de-center book reading and essay writing as the pinnacles of English language arts education. But what is an English education without reading and learning to write about books? Many of our English teachers instead encouraged extemporaneous discussions of our feelings and socioeconomic status, viewings of dance videos, and endless TED Talks. So five days into my sophomore year, I convinced my mother to homeschool me. Distance from high school affords a clearer view of its perennial problems. As I head into my final year of homeschooling, I often think about the dilemma in American education, which perhaps should be called the student crisis. It's also a teacher crisis. Students and teachers are more exhausted and fragile than they used to be. But reducing homework or gutting it of substance, taking away structure and accountability, and creating boundless space for student voices feels more patronizing than supportive. The taut cable of high expectations has been slackened, and the result is the current mood, listlessness. Like human happiness, teenage happiness does not flourish when everyone has the freedom to live just as they please. Where there is neither order nor necessity in life— No constraints, no inhibitions, no discomfort. Life becomes both relaxing and boring, as American philosopher Alan Bloom notes. A soft imprisonment. So, here is my counterintuitive guide for teenage happiness. Number one. Read old books. In Alan Bennett's The History Boys, the profoundly human, i.e. imperfect, teacher Hector reminds his students that The best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things that you'd thought special, particular to you. And here it is, set down by someone else, a person you've never met, maybe even someone long dead. And it's as if a hand has come out and taken yours. Today's teachers and students talk a lot about relatability, They want to see their own lives and experiences reflected in the books they read. But I feel electrified when a book gives me the feeling Hector brilliantly describes. Words from someone who is not at all like me, from a very different time and place, yet speaks words that feel written just for me. Books that are representative, that are more easily absorbed, undermine the main reason to read them, to push readers beyond themselves in uncomfortable and productive ways. Bloom wrote about the disappearance of books from our educational lives back in 1987. Books, he argued, quote, are no longer an important part of the lives of students. Information is important, but profound and beautiful books are not where they go for it. They have no books that are companions and friends to which they look for counsel, companionship, inspiration, or pleasure. They do not expect to find in them sympathy for or clarification of their inmost desires and experiences. The worst part is that we students are blind to the extent of our loss. Number two, memorize poetry, learn ancient languages. In another scene from The History Boys, one English schoolboy preparing for Oxbridge entrance exams, Tim's, asks Hector why they are reading the poetry of A. He, Hausman, instead of doing something practical. Tim says, I don't always understand poetry, sir. And Hector responded, You don't always understand it. Tim's, I never understand it. But learn it now, know it now, and you will understand it, whenever. Tim's again, I don't see how we can understand it. Most of the stuff poetry's about hasn't happened to us yet. Hector. But it will, Tims. It will. And then you will have the antidote ready. Like Tims, I sometimes don't understand what I'm learning or memorizing when I study poetry. But I believe Hector when he says it prepares us for the very real events of the world. Going to war. Falling in love. Falling out of love making a friend, losing a friend, having a child, losing a child. Understanding ancient authors as they understood themselves is the surest means of finding alternatives to our current way of seeing the world. It is what Bloom calls one of the most awesome undertakings of the mind. The first step to reading ancient authors is learning ancient languages, Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Old English. I have found the work of learning languages and the difficult art of translation to be the most taxing and pleasurable method of training my brain, combining technical rigor with poetic insight. It doesn't matter if all the hours you spend studying gerundives, middle passives, and semi-deponents seem to offer no immediate service. Learn them. It will serve you in a way you don't yet know. Number 3. Learn from the monks and slow your pace of reading, of writing, of thinking. Someone once told me that I look like Martin Luther, you know, the 16th century German clergyman who called for reformation in the Catholic Church. This comment referred to my bangs, which are somewhat short and monastic. I think it's funny that my hairstyle echoes my lifestyle. I wake up at 6 a.m., work alone for many hours on subjects that see arcane: latin German, Applied mathematics spend more hours caught up in an actual printed book, and get to bed at a very reasonable grandmotherly hour. We have a family saying that nothing good happens after 9.07 p.m. I used to think speed equaled competence. If you're a motivated student, you may find yourself on the accelerated track. Instead of learning things that challenge you, you're simply rushed through the curriculum, covering concepts at a faster rate than your peers'. Since I transitioned to homeschool, I never move on from a problem or subject before I am ready. I find knowing that I truly understand something, or at least have spent time trying to know it, thus expanding my mind, far more rewarding than the fleeting frisson of being the first to finish. Number four, learn how to conduct yourself in public. It all begins with knowing how to arrange your face when having conversations with real living people. No one wants to talk to someone who has a slack jaw and glazed eyes, who yawns openly, who doesn't laugh at jokes or nod in recognition. Too many Zoom school sessions involve speaking into a void of faceless boxes. So for my 17th birthday, I threw an intergenerational celebration of First World War-era poetry. I labored lovingly on a historically accurate chocolate cake, modeled on the trenches in the waste of no-man's land. When I told my best traditional high school-aged friend to come with her favorite war poem, she said sarcastically, It will be so hard to choose. I invited my favorite teachers, family members, and friends of my parents. A little weird, but it was a great party, and the conversation flowed. Part of learning how to conduct yourself in public is learning how to interact with people of different ages and experiences, who read different books, watch different shows, and grew up in a different time than you. Number five, dramatically reduce use of your phone. The final key to being a happy teenager is to do away with the machine for feeling bad, as we call it in my house. Seriously, walk away from your phone. You've seen the statistics, you've read the Jonathan Haidt articles, and you've watched that Netflix documentary with Tristan Harris. You know it's bad for you. But let's make it more concrete. Having a phone in your pocket is like always carrying around a glazed donut that constantly tempts you to snack on it. But if you do, you know it'll ruin your appetite. Sure, the phone is a good way for people to get hold of you. Just like smearing yourself with blood before you go swimming in shark-infested waters is a good way for sharks to reach you. Now how appealing is that? My roommates at Latin Summer School, a group of some of the kindest and sanest teenagers I've ever met, agree that most of their friends are unhappy and anxious. I wish there were higher standards for us, said one. Another declared, I wish we had higher expectations for what we learn. Teenagers actually crave self-guided, unstructured time and the kind of rigor in school that makes you feel energized, not enervated. My suggestions for teenage happiness are, I know, unlikely to appeal to the intended demographic. And yet I hope my peers will hear me. If you choose to take on three out of five of these precepts, I guarantee your heart will stop sinking.
0: We'll be right back with Michael Tobin. Stay with us.
2: When the Light Fades, by Michael Tobin. If life were fair, Alzheimer's should never have eaten Deborah's brain. My wife had no family history. All four of her Lebanese grandparents lived far into their 90s and were as acerbic, argumentative, and quick-witted at 95 as they were at 25. But Alzheimer's devoured my wife, my best friend, my life partner, my soulmate. It took the compassionate psychologist who graduated from Wellesley, MIT, and the Sorbonne. The polymath fluent in five languages, who could calculate complex mathematical formulas in her head and whose brain came with its own GPS. The woman whose body could contort into pretzel-like yoga postures, with the ease and grace of a ballerina, the truth-seeker who had an uncanny ability to pierce through layers of psychic sludge to unearth a soul in all its shining glory. Diagnosed in November 2018, she had won a perverse lottery. Our wake-up call came one month earlier, on a late morning in our favorite cafe. I was sitting with Deborah Three of our four children, their spouses, and seven of our thirteen grandchildren. When an old friend, Hanna, approached the table, she asked Deborah and me about our recent trek to the Everest base camp. I answered with a few words like freezing, tough, amazing. Deborah said nothing. I noticed a faraway look in her eyes. When Hanna left, I asked Deborah if she was okay. Who is was that woman, she asked. A simple question in search of a direct answer. A terrifying question when asked about Hannah. A woman she had known for 32 years. A close friend she had vacationed with. Her fellow psychologist with whom she shared the same office. Until then, I had not wanted to see the obvious. For the previous year, Deborah had been uncharacteristically agreeable and far too mellow. I began to long for her confrontations, those moments when she'd stare me down with her intense green eyes and awaken me with some unpleasant truth about myself. Two years earlier, she caught me sucking in my stomach. Matter of factly, she said, who are you kidding, Michael, you're fat. No sweet equivocations, just straight to the point. I was furious. Two months later, I was 15 pounds lighter. Then there was the binge-watching. When I would ask, why so much TV? Her answer was invariably, I need to relax. That was not my Deborah. My Deborah relaxed by creating videos, fixing broken electrical appliances, trekking to high places, meditating, performing 108 salutations to the sun. And soon after, her rich, descriptive vocabulary slowly ebbed away. Two years earlier, she had given a presentation on therapeutic attunement to 500 psychologists. She demonstrated how to transform the language of passivity and hopelessness into the active language of therapeutic change. Now, a complex situation filled with multiple variables, an act of terror, an overdue bill, A friend's broken marriage became, in her words, a mess. I cringed the moment the words slipped from her lips. And, of course, there was her memory. In the months leading up to that October morning, she had mixed up our grandchildren's names for months. And what should have been the most startling wake-up call of all, she watched movies she'd seen as recently as the previous day, convinced that she had never seen them. The first stage of grief is denial. I was no stranger to Alzheimer's. From 1982 to 1985, I had worked as a psychologist on the geriatric ward of Boston's Hahnemann Hospital, where I watched helplessly as this insidious disease ravaged beautiful minds. But when Deborah was diagnosed, neither my heart nor my mind could make space for this harsh reality. One that would eventually disrupt the remaining years of our life together. When the neurologist turned to her and said, I'm sorry you have Alzheimer's, she nodded dispassionately, as if she had known for weeks. In a process that takes months, if not years, she had skipped the first four of Kubler Ross's stages and had gone straight to acceptance. It is what it is, she said looking directly into my eyes. We'll deal with it, like we've dealt with everything else. No, I said, loud enough for her ears. We're not giving in to this fucking disease. I was 72 years old at the time. Deborah was 69. 44 years earlier, we had collided on a dance floor. Back then, for some crazy reason I still don't understand, I glared at the raven-haired beauty who bumped into me and then gave her the finger. She stared back fearlessly. Then a smile broke across her lips. You have a strange way of picking up a girl. We laughed. It wasn't your typical introduction, but nothing was ever typical about our relationship. That night, we danced as if we had always known each other's moves. There was simply too much at stake for me to give into Alzheimer's or to give up on Deborah. As a psychologist, I'm a professional problem solver. I search for answers, for elusive solutions, for the anomaly at the tail end of a bell curve. Turns out that anomalies resided on every corner of the internet. I read about a man who couldn't remember any of his grandchildren, and then after six days of downing a turmeric, apple cider vinegar, and lemon juice cocktail, he counted backwards, flawlessly by sevens, from 100 to two. He then called all six of his grandchildren by their correct names. So we tried all that, cocktails to jog her memory, herbs to rejuvenate neurons, supplements for igniting synapses, a low-carb diet to make the sticky white stuff suffocating her brain dissolve, exercises to resuscitate the hippocampus. All the while, Deborah watched the same movie Day after day, as if it were the first time. Why, I asked. Because it's complex, she answered. The hangover is complex? Yeah, they can't find that guy. What guy, I asked. You know that guy, she answered. Nothing worked. Deborah's Alzheimer's didn't bow before the Internet's ambitious promise to eliminate this disease through intermittent fasting, macadamia nuts, salmon, and kale. No amount of omega 3, turmeric, or lion's mane could stop its relentless death march. Like the creeping flow of lava, the deadly white amyloid plaque, neurofibrillary tangles, and uncontrolled surge of glial cells powered through the cracks and the crevices, destroying Deborah's lovely walnut shaped cerebral cortex, where her memory and identity once resided. Prudence dictated we should continue with donepezil, a drug that stimulates a neurotransmitter associated with the storage and retrieval of memory. It helped, minimally. She still remembered to call me Michael, but all 13 grandchildren became a cacophony of nameless and faceless noise machines, babbling in Hebrew, a language she once spoke well, but now dribbled from her mouth as an amalgam of pigeon French, Swedish, Hebrew, and English. Walks helped. In fact, walking is the only scientifically proven method to slow down, not stop or eliminate, merely prolong the progression of the illness. It is said that rage is the last act of the incompetent, a powerfully empty emotion that feeds on helplessness and despair. I was sinking into it. I wanted to scream, hit, or break something or someone. But who? But what? A heartless disease? The medical profession? My beloved victim? My own helplessness? My friends were worried about me. You cannot fix the unfixable, one of them told me. He suggested I write about anything, about what you're going through. Don't censor yourself. Rage, cry, scream, just write it out. So I wrote. But what emerged surprised me. At the periphery of consciousness, I sensed a hint of a story emerging, far more one of healing than giving voice to the dark side of fury and hopelessness. In my mind, I composed a love song to Deborah. That love song became a book titled Writing the Edge, A Love Song to Deborah," a testimonial to the most extraordinary person I've known, and a memoir about our not-quite-around-the-world-bicycle odyssey that took place over a six-month period in 1980. After I completed each chapter, I read it out loud to Deborah. I followed her eyes, her expressions, her gestures, anything that would indicate that she was present with the story. In Paris, we had a serendipitous encounter with a Dutch Jew who told his tale of tragedy and loss. In the Nazi death camps. Tears flowed down her cheeks as I read to her the story of his 50 family members who were murdered in Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Sobibor. When I read sections recalling our struggles pedaling up the Alps, then our delights soaring down, I sensed an imperceptible movement in her leg, almost like she was shaking an old memory loose. We held hands in the safety of our living room as I read the chapter about how Mahmoud drove like a lunatic through the bombs and bullets of Beirut. Can you believe we actually did this, she exclaimed. Do you remember why we went to Lebanon, I asked. I could see from the movement of her eyes that she was searching for an answer. Should I help, I asked. No, she answered. A minute passed and her eyes widened and she said, because I had family there. Yes, I responded, because you had family there. It's now been more than five years since our wake-up call. Deborah's past has slipped from consciousness. Her future is no longer hers to shape. But together, we still own the present. I know it from her eyes. I can see it when she smiles. I can feel it when she reaches for my hand and says, I love you. I'm no longer in denial. I don't rage against the unfairness of it all. Grief hasn't crippled me. I search for love and connection in small ways because a moment of connection is to be alive. And to be alive with Deborah, with Alzheimer's, is to arrive at the tail end of the curve.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and family. And if you want to enter one of our upcoming essay contests, and be sure not to miss anything at all, there's one way to do that. It's by becoming a subscriber today at the Free Press's website, thefp.com, T-H-E-F-P.com. It's a perfect time to become a subscriber, running a 25% discount this Christmas. It's a great present for you or a great present for someone you love. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy new year, and we'll see you soon.